my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco De Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Maya Lau. I don't think money is an inherently interesting topic. I think people are interesting, and I think how we think, feel, behave, talk, and don't talk about money is endlessly fascinating. What we learn about money growing up often has a huge impact on the education we pursue or don't pursue and the kind of jobs we ultimately choose. Those two things have a huge impact on the life we end up living, and oftentimes the actual money aspect is never a part of the conversation. This week's guest is Maya Lau. She spent most of her career as an investigative journalist, but she's recently begun executive producing and hosting her podcast called Other People's Pockets. On her show, she uses her seasoned journalism background to interview subjects about their jobs and their lives, but she doesn't shy away from the money aspect. It isn't the focus, but it isn't ignored. Please enjoy my conversation with Maya. Maya Lau, thank you so much for joining me on the Weird Finance Podcast. I'm sure. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. So 
before we jump into what your podcast is about, I would love to get a little bit of of an origin story of how you became the Maya sitting before me. <laughs> well, I guess I'll start with me becoming a newspaper reporter. I was a newspaper reporter in Shreveport, Louisiana first and covered crime and then moved down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to The Advocate, where I also covered criminal justice and the prison system ended up going over to the LA Times and doing the same, covering there the LA County Sheriff's Department as well as other criminal justice-related things and became an investigative reporter. And through it all, loved it, loved asking questions, loved talking to people, and but also felt really frustrated about money, about the sort of salary ceilings that exist in journalism. And I had gotten into journalism knowing that it's a sinking ship. You know, I, I had no illusions of making a lot of money or anything. But I think as I got older and I, I got married, I had a kid, I just had more expenses and kind of more financial dreams for myself. And it started to get really annoying to ask for a raise and then not get one for many years and to try to compile the information and, you know, the, the data to back up why I should get a raise. And it still felt like it wouldn't go anywhere or it would it would move the needle just a little bit. And I also started to feel like, okay, so I can apply to other jobs. I can do that kind of leverage. But I started to realize, I don't think I want any of these other jobs. Like there'd be people would send me, oh, there's this job at the New York Times or at ProPublica or whatever, reporter covering XYZ. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I want to do that. And it was this really weird feeling of I'm at sort of the, I mean, not to be sound grandiose, but I, I was sort of at the pinnacle of where I thought I could get to, like being an investigative reporter at a major American newspaper. And I had had some amazing impact and awards and I felt really good about my work, but I felt like here I am doing the thing that I for a long time said I wanted to do and I'm not happy. And I don't feel excited about any other potential jobs I could have in the newsroom, about being an editor or anything else. I just kind of realized, like, I don't think I really want to be here, which feels very weird. But I started interviewing other people who'd left journalism to try to report out my own career journey. It was like, okay, here's a mystery. I'm a reporter. What do I do? I ask a ton of people lots of questions. And it doesn't mean that I want their jobs. It just means I'm gathering these little bits of information. And sometimes the best sources are people who you'll have a whole hour-long conversation with them. And they'll have this one sentence that's like a throwaway line to them. And you're like, wait, what? You know, and it, you just kind of grab onto these bits of information. So I'd have conversations with ex-journalists. You know, what do you do now? Do you like it? How much money do you make? do you miss being a journalist? And and s started to put together this picture of, oh, I, I used to think my tribe was with journalists. And now I'm starting to feel like my tribe is maybe also with ex-journalists. Like we have something in common. Hmm. We took these skills, we remixed them, and we moved them into something else. So I started to feel a lot more confident about leaving the LA Times. And then Around the same time, I started to come up with the idea for the podcast that I have now, which is called Other People's Pockets, where I interview people about how much money they make, how they make it, how they feel about it, kind of their money story. And it's kind of a, a, a get to know you of a person through the story of their personal finances. And so I started to put that together at the same time. And so, yeah, I ended up leaving the LA Times. I ended up starting my own company. 
I now do financial investigation in the investment world, but then I also have this podcast, two completely separate worlds that don't touch each other. And I can't tell you how happy I am and how amazed I am that I get to do this work. Like I I realized I really wasn't really a realization, it was more of an acceptance of the fact that I really didn't like writing. Like I was very proud of myself that I learned how to do it well and learned how to do it on deadline. But I didn't enjoy it. I didn't look forward to that. What I looked forward to was talking to people, connecting with them, asking them questions. And so I get to do that now with the podcast. And yeah, it's it's been really fun. So that's that's a little bit about my background. Did you always not like writing or did that evolve because it became your job? Yeah, that's a good question. I was always intrigued by writing. I think writing sort of more personal things, personal essays. I started writing a lot when I was in the Peace Corps in Senegal in West Africa. And I had a blog and then I started writing for the Huffington Post. And that was a lot more based on my experiences firsthand. And so I knew what I was saying. So I did like it, but it was always this really tough puzzle for me. And then especially when, I guess when it is your job and you're writing about things you don't know as much about on a deadline, it's really hard and it you don't feel as much passion for it maybe because you're like, I have to write this thing. It has to be co- totally correct, but I have two hours to pull this inf- information together. Yeah, I think that it always honestly was tough for me. And I think that we sometimes seek out the things that are hard for us intentionally. We, we were drawn to like, what is the thing that gives me the most anxiety? I want to attack that. I think that that's what it was for me. And I felt like, okay, I got to a point where I can prove that I did it. I had a business card that said staff writer on it. And it always, every time I looked down at it, it was like, I write for a living, Maya? Like, I guess I do that, but I don't feel like I'm this amazing writer. So yeah, I think that it was, it was, I was attracted to it because it was a difficulty for me. Yeah, I don't, I also don't know why I continue to write, but the famous like quote is, and I don't remember who it is, Writers don't love writing, but they love to have written. Sure. Yeah. There are some writers who love writing and they're rare, but they exist. But yes, of course. I like it's like, do you like to learn the piano or do you like to already know the piano? That's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, do you want to go through the painful process yeah. of coming up with the hypothesis and then trying to defend it? Right. Writing is less. It's so cerebral. I, like what I love about music, I write I write music as well. Is you can say whatever the fuck you want with a song. You could just mm-hmm. drop out a line of poetry and never have to explain yourself. But with writing, like you're saying, it has to be cohesive. I also want to shout out and say that I was definitely going to ask you about you not liking writing because I saw that you had tweeted or do you still say tweet now that it's X? X? I don't know. X'd? I don't know what we say X. <laughs> <laughs> that in your farewell letter or your whatever you wrote to the folks at the LA Times, you wrote about how you don't like writing. And I always find that to be fascinating. People are like, I don't really like this thing. Uh, <laughs> that <tough>. I do. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually wrote the phrase, I, I still fucking hate writing. And I mean, it was a little bit tongue in cheek. And for people who know me, know what I mean by that. But yeah, a few people wrote to me like, oh, wow, that's so 
crazy that you actually said that because <laughs> some of them agreed with me and then some of them were like, that's so weird. I don't hate writing. What I hate is digging and talking to people. And I'm like, that's, that's part. the part of reporting that I like. We should work together. <laughs> yeah, I also find it weird to be in a job where the talking is the product. That's I know. Bizarre. I mean, I think it's so... It's so mind-blowing to me that you can have a podcast. Like, you can talk to somebody and not necessarily arrive at any conclusion. You know, it's it's all about the process, the journey. Like, someone listening to it, it's a very just human experience. And then that's it. And it gets edited, of course. But it's not like, okay, so I had all these conversations and now I have to distill them into a very cohesive thesis statement. Like that is an entirely different exercise. It's great to be able to do that. But sometimes, yeah, the product is just the conversation. And it's like, oh, I had no idea that anyone would ever want to listen to me just having a conversation. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's like, you know, it sounds so Californian. It's all about the journeyman. <laughs> Yeah. Where uh, are you from in California? I'm in Los Angeles and I grew up down in Anaheim, which is about 20 okay. miles south. So California I'm from San Diego. Through. Oh, you're from San Diego. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, you <laughs> get it. It's all about the journey, man. <laughs> but I think we're also dealing with a unprecedented time of loneliness in our society and isolation. I think coming off the back of one being, you know, socially isolated from the pandemic, but two, like technology, the thing that to unite us, I think is dividing us. And so sometimes it's just nice to put in my little, you know, earbuds and walk around and hear other people having a conversation and just feel like I'm there, like I'm connecting with them. So I, I do think that's a big part of it too. Yeah. And to hear them chewing on a problem and not coming to a conclusion and feeling conflicted. I mean, that's, that's just real life. Yeah, absolutely. So where, where do you think journalism is going? I'm curious because you jump ship. Is it mm -hmm. going to survive today? I've read some headline. I think I really could have been Washington Post. I can't remember. Laid off 240, you know, staff writers. It just seems to be happening all around us. Where, where is it going? Where do you think it's going? I don't know. I mean, this has been the conversation for however many decades now. It, somebody said, I think maybe it was David Carr. Someone said the future of journalism is talking about the future of journalism. Like, <laughs> at conferences or whatever. It's just, so I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to keep going through many iterations. There's obviously a movement to move to more nonprofit news and the, you know, understanding that we need to donate money and that that is the way it's going to survive. Um, but I think that, you know, judging from the amount of journalists that still reach out to me saying like, oh my God, how did you you know, like, how did you, you know, they're, they're looking to leave. They're, they're seeing the same writing on the wall that I did. Um, yeah, I don't think it's great. But I think that I think that there will always be a need for journalism. It's just a matter of does the audience want to pay for it? Does the audience value it? And that is scary to think about. But I, I don't have the answer to that question. I mean, I don't think anyone does. Okay, so how many subscriptions do you pay for? in terms of newspapers and magazines? Probably like four. Okay. I think I might be in the same boat, but part of it too is like, yeah, it's write-offable or it's part of my job. Oh, yeah. I actually maybe should include that as... <laughs> no, I do. For some of them, for sure, I do. I'm a member of, I think, 
two public radio stations and then like LA Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. There might be, yeah. But inevitably, I'm sure you see an article, you think this is going to be interesting. You click on it and it's like, give me your money. And you're like, you know what? No, I already give my money to a lot of other publications. I can't possibly afford giving it to you. Am I the only one experiencing that or do you feel that as well? No, I mean, that's everyone. And that, that, that's, the, that's the thing that you have to think about. You know, it's the same with like Spotify and Netflix. You just have to decide, is this a value to me? And yeah, I, I'm totally guilty of like, I should be subscribing to so many more. And I have to think through like, yeah, can I afford this? Is it worth it to me? It's not that I don't think that it's worth it. It's just that I get subscription fatigue and I just don't like to have subscriptions to too many things. So, yeah. I feel you. And I kind of wanted to press you on it too because, you know, you were on the other side of that. And yeah, it's it's a tough negotiation to recognize and realize like people should be compensated for their labor. But now we have this piece of technology where it's available, right? The newspapers are not locked up in those boxes. I mean, I guess they are, but who's who's reading it in that way? Right. Not many people. <laughs> Old people. <laughs> Yeah, I saw on the front page of Reddit recently, there was some kind of newspaper and it seems so pretentious. The newspaper was like, we will not publish in digital format. It will there will be 25,000 printed copies available of this newspaper or zine or whatever. And that's just it. And on the one hand, mm -hmm. I was like, that's so old timey. You know, you're trying to put the toothpaste back into mm -hmm. the tube, but it's awful. I'll never be able to, you know, they'll probably writing about, I don't know. Ducks or something. Is it some niche zine or is it like a daily newspaper? I don't think it's a daily newspaper because okay. it's not going to survive. Yeah, it's probably some niche zine and they're like into the whole, you know, print thing, which is fine. And they're trying to create scarcity and trying to make it cool. And I mean, it's not, I guess it's not that different from like a jewelry maker being like, there's X number of these pieces or any kind of artisan being like, I can make X amount. This is all I can make. So, but yeah, I think it's like part of a a marketing gimmick. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying that's kind of part of their like identity is that it's, there's scarcity. I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking like how old timey and cute it was. But now I'm like, of course, it all boils down to scarcity. Yeah. At the end of the day. That's so much of Yeah, all. I mean, I mean scarcity is how luxury items maintain their luxuriness. Like there's stories of Louis Vuitton and, you know, any kind of designer brand actually destroying some of their inventory so that it doesn't end up in the hands of secondary and tertiary markets because if it does and you can just get it from some guy on the street selling it, then is it really luxury? So, right. yeah. Hmm. All right, Maya, I want to reel this in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and I want to know how you thought about money before the podcast. And if talking, having roughly 35 conversations with people about money and, and you know, various capacities, if it's changed your relationship to money at all. Yeah, I think before having the podcast, I thought about money a lot. I stressed about money a lot. I was in a mode for a few years of checking every book out from the library on personal finance and just trying to ingest all this information until it finally got to a point where you're hearing the same information over and over again and you already know what they're going to say. And so you're like, okay, I think I, I think I got this, even though even if I'm not 
dominating financially. I think I know, you know, save X amount of your income or have an emergency savings and don't take on consumer debt, all these kind of rules. Um, And then now talking to people, it's funny because I, in investigative journalism, I loved confronting people, like particularly people that needed to be confronted, like a politician or someone who did wrong or something, not like a, you know, grandma down the street. But like, <laughs> I I liked the moment where I got to say, hey, I know that you did this. What is your response? I loved that. And with this show, I thought that it would be easy to be like, okay, so how much money do you make? And tell me everything. What about this? And what about that? And it actually was still kind of hard. Um, I think because I'm also, I'm not trying to make people uncomfortable, actually. I'm not trying to accuse them of anything. I'm actually trying to make them feel like a friend and I want money to be something that can feel like a friendly topic. So it's really hard to walk that line of here we are having this jovial time. And also I'm going to ask you some of the questions that are the hardest for most people to answer publicly. And so I definitely had an evolution in terms of the comfort, my own comfort with asking the question and of following up and pressing them. And now I feel a lot more comfortable. I feel like I'm less, I guess I'm less shocked by almost anything somebody will say. I'm finding a lot more similarities in what people say. And I'm also just really interested in them as a person, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not just like, okay, let's go through this spreadsheet of, you know, last month's expenses and let's talk about all the numbers. It's like, at some point, it's actually boring to get too into the numbers. And it's more about who is this person? What does this say about them? You know, what does this say about their values? Like, that's what I'm really interested in. I think that is what is the most interesting thing about like personal finance content. And the content that does really well is exactly that. It's like, you know, the money diary does really, Mm. really well. People love to know how other people spend their money and then, and then judge them because they don't share the same values, which I find Mm. really, really entertaining. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in a household where it was like much more valuable to do something interesting than it was to do something for the money. I've heard you say that. I can't remember where, probably on an interview that you're yeah. doing. But you got older and like you mentioned, your perspective changed, right? You Things got more expensive. You just had to reorient your lens of life and say like, oh, okay, well, I should care about the money now. I wonder if your parents ever had that reckoning as well or were they, did they get to live in the bubble of, you know, work is more about what's interesting versus providing a bunch of money? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure what they would say. I'm sure that they've had reckoning, reckonings. I mean, they they are divorced. And so I think that in and of itself was a huge reckoning in terms of how am I going to afford this life? How am I going to afford these kids? But I do think that, you know, they're from a different generation. They're both in their 70s now. And they were able to do things like buy a house that probably cost, I think my mom said at one point, the conventional wisdom around when she was buying a house was something like it would be three times your yearly salary or something like something kind of reasonable like oh it's not you know 10 times your yearly salary or more um and so i think that they got to enjoy that and there's still i think that they got I, they did have to take jobs that were more for the money 
but also still within their skill set. I mean, I don't think that they completely abandon all of their interests, but yeah, they definitely had to shift and take jobs that were more high paying. But I, but I think that the way that they raised us and kind of the messaging was still like, follow your dream and, you know, it'll kind of work out somehow. And it wasn't like, okay, seriously, like, how are you going to afford life? It wasn't that sort of fear. It was just mm. like, just do cool shit, like more I guess. Whimsy. I mean, and I don't, I don't mean to say that my parents are totally naive or anything, but I do think that, yeah, they, they came up in a different generation where they could afford different things. So, yeah, I think we're in the face of tension where we grew up with these ideas and we watched gnarliness happen before our very eyes. Like my parents don't have college degrees. They were able to afford a house in Southern California with a 20% down payment. And like, you know, my dad did, you know, respectable. He like worked at the post office, you know, he, he just did ordinary things. And now to afford a house in California, you have to do extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we're reckoning with is just, okay, we have these ideas, these things that were programmed into us about what is possible, an operating system for life. Mm -hmm. And now we're standing around in 2023, like, hmm, so we got to change that. (laughs) Yeah. None of that applies. Not working out. How... How are you raising your child? I mean, I know you have a tiny, (laughs) tiny baby child or not a kid who you're probably having larger conversations about finances with. But thinking about that person growing into somebody who's going to have to navigate this. My daughter is four. She just turned four. We don't have have personal finance conversations (laughs) yet. I have asked her where money comes from and she says, El Banco, the bank. Mm. Like... Uh, We live in Mexico City. So she's like, it comes from the bank. Duh. I think that what I want to do is really be practical with her about certain things like how to find a job, how to network, how to have informational interviews, how to make your resume stand out, how to have different skills, how to think entrepreneurially about your career and that you're not going to probably work in the same job for 40 years, that you're going to create jobs for yourself, that the best jobs are often ones you create for yourself. They're not listed anywhere. Um, how to save, how to invest, all that stuff. Like all the things that people always say, like, why don't they teach you this in school? Like, I would really like to teach her those things, at least what I know of them. That's kind of how I want to approach that and just be really honest with her about this is how much this costs, you know, with college and stuff. This is how much we're putting in. This is how much this costs. This is how people actually pay for this. And just make it clear that it's not, this stuff doesn't just materialize. And and it is interesting to see, even at her age, the way advertising works on her. And she knows, that, like, at the back of every children's book are little pictures of related children's <laughs> books that you can buy. And sometimes they're by the same author or just by the same publisher. And no one's ever explained that to her, but she knows, she goes... She goes, she goes, mom, tomorrow we should buy this book. Aww. And it's like, it's always, I'm always like, oh, you're such a consumerist. Like, she's always like, oh, let's go buy this. Let's go buy that. And I do want to instill in her at some point, you know, that we can't just buy whatever. It comes from somewhere. But she understands this concept of you want something and you just go out and buy it. What a world we live in. 
I also realized like several years ago, took me a while to, I don't know how I came to this realization. Maybe I read it somewhere, but the things that are on sale for children at the store are like down below at their lower down, colorful. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Never a free moment to not market it to or become a cute little consumer. Yeah. How do you like working for yourself? Do you feel, do you feel better about your finances now that you have maybe autonomy over the way that you get to move about the working world? Totally. I make more money now than I ever did as an employee. And I, you know, I'm very like knock on wood, who knows that might change next year. I realize that things are very up and down and I've been very lucky these past two years. But yeah, I do like it. I feel like it's taught me that I can rely on myself more and I can have confidence in my network and in my skills and that you know, betting on a company is not necessarily safer because then they own you, they could go under, you know, my company is me, it's my brand, it's my expertise. I feel more confident in that at this point. And, and I do like it. I have a lot more flexibility with my time. I don't always worry like, oh, you know, like right now I'm doing this interview. It's 1pm here. Ain't nobody got to know where I like, I don't have to tell anyone what I'm doing. I don't have to feel bad about oh, am I like using my lunch break or whatever? It's just, this is my time. So I do, I like it a lot. I do feel like it also just coincides with where I am as a mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said, my daughter's four. It it works for me right now. And there may come a point where my daughter gets older and I feel less of a need to, like one of the things, the issues with that is like, I don't get a full night of sleep most nights because she still wakes up in the middle of the night. And so there's there's a certain element of, I don't have the horsepower to, to go hard at a traditional job in the way that I used to. But yeah, there, there'll probably come a time where I'll be like, you know, I don't want to work from home forever. And I really miss having colleagues. And, you know, then I'll have to reevaluate. But, but right now it's working out pretty well. Yeah, I I would say the downsides are for sure worth the upsides. Yeah, how long have you been working for yourself? I think I hung out my shingle around this time or November of, gosh, 2014? That's a long time. So almost 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I was a bad employee. And I realized that just probably means I... Oh, one of the things I didn't like was like, I will be penalized for being a fast worker. That was always weird to me. I'm like, I'm a fast worker. I'm going to make you more money, but I'm getting in trouble because like, I want to fuck off early, you know? Right. So that never worked for me. And I was like, I just questioned too many things that really upset a lot of people. Like, why are these policies like this? Could we possibly do things more efficiently? Right. I quickly learned like, don't, you know, don't bring your 20 year old idealism to the workplace. Right. Yeah. And any big organization, it's like it's like a religion or any any organized sure. thing. It, there's there's rules, there's customs, there's people that you have to know. And, and some of that can be fun to navigate and important, I think, for any young person to 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 know how to do that. But yeah, it's just so weird to be like, oh, I want to do this thing. I don't have to get it signed off on by 30 people. But then the hard part of that is like, well, when you have to do it now, like there's no, there's no operating system. Like you're kind of making it up as you go. Like, 
I don't know what it was like for you to venture into podcasting, but you have all these potential possibilities, right? All these different routes and roads to take. And then like, it's a blessing, right? To have opportunities and different projects that you can work on. But then it's more about like, what dies? Like, what do you have to say no to in order for something else to live, you know? Yeah. And you also have to manage yourself, which is really hard. And one thing I don't know if you have, but I have an executive coach now. And that's been amazing because it's this whole idea of when you're a solo business owner or you're an executive, you don't really have any colleagues. You don't have anyone else at your level who you can see at the water cooler and be like, hey, I'm really struggling with this. So you need somebody like a coach or just somebody else who understands what it's like, who's been in your shoes, who counsels a lot of other people doing the same thing and can help you create a roadmap, can come up with goals that you have to fulfill by the next week, or you can talk through how hard it is to do X, Y, Z. Like, that's been amazing. You kind of hired a boss. Yeah, or like <laughs> you, you're hiring an accountability partner and you're right. hiring somebody who knows, who has run, has started and run businesses themselves. And so they know what you're doing. And so they can be like, okay, so it sounds like you're in this stage of your business. These are the things that help people that at your stage, you know, do X, Y, Z, and even just setting rates with clients and how to set a new rate structure and how to justify it and explain it. And just to have someone be like, yes, this is a normal thing to do. And I don't know, it's, I think that's really helpful because going it alone can be hard and lonely. Yeah, definitely. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. 
That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lately, I started to just pay the minimum on my credit card each month. It's nice because it feels like it doesn't hurt my wallet too much that way. Yeah. In the short time, that might feel easier on your budget now. But did you know the interest compounds over time? Wait, what does that mean? When you carry a balance, you're not just paying interest on what you borrowed, but also on the previous interest that's been added. So by just paying the minimum, I'm letting the interest grow and grow? Exactly! That's why it can take years to clear your debt, and you end up paying way more than you originally spent. It's also wise to pay as much as you can each month to avoid the snowballing effect of compound interest. Wow, I'll definitely make sure I pay more than the minimum amount. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Do you feel like having the conversations about money through the podcast has made it easier for you to stand by your raid and demand that you be paid X amount for your research and effort? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think overall, for sure, it has. But it's still that fear doesn't go away. Like I did I did ask for and get a new rate and rate structure with a client. And I still was like, but like. What if they say this? And, the, you know, and my coach had to be like, Maya, you know that you ask people about money. You talk about <laughs> money for a living. Like, <laughs> what, you know? And I yeah. was like, yeah, it's because it's fucking hard. And you, especially when you're asking someone to value your own work, um, you feel like you're asking them to value yourself. And you feel just, like you have to have every justification lined up. And then after it's over, you, I mean, depending on how it goes, you know, you'll, you might feel different ways. But in the abstract, I feel like, of course, you know, no big deal. But in the moment, 
it's hard. Definitely. It's like jumping into a cold ocean, you know, you just got to get it over with. And in the end, you feel a little bit better. Yeah, at least you <laughs> asked. At least you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you are having a great time working for yourself. Do you do you think it's for everyone? I'm curious. No, I, it's definitely not for everyone. I know plenty of people who they will openly admit to loving office culture, loving organizations, loving having a boss. I get it. I mean, I I don't think it's for everyone. I don't think that the world is a better place if literally everyone is at home all day. I mean, that's weird. It's also not good for the economy. Like there needs to be restaurants and lunch places and like things that happen with like people going to different parts of town. No, it's definitely not for everybody. I think that it can be for people who are creatives, for people who don't feel like they fit into an organization, for people who have a lot of ideas and entrepreneurialism and want to try something, even if it's for uh, just a few years. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not for everyone. And sometimes I'm like, this is not for me, but I think, I think finding certain support systems to make it work for me better is the way forward. The thing that I'm so surprised about in my own brain that I fantasize about because now I have responsibility, right? Like I have a bookkeeping agency that I run and we have staff and they depend on that paycheck. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tank the company. I want everyone to be okay. And I mm. want to also be okay. I want safety and security. But the thing I fantasize about is just a job with no responsibilities, which is my very first mm. job ever at Jamba Juice, the smoothie company. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just go and I'd be like, would you like a boost with that? I would make smoothies. Then I would go home never an email no one no one had my no email. there was never a smoothie email no, follow-up no smoothie yeah. emergency <laughs> a breakout session yeah. yeah so that i think that that's like the most interesting thing that i think about is how how like you know being a business owner working for yourself having to think about other employees like yeah your mind oh, for sure it's cannibalized how many employees do you have five and they're they're full time like that's they rely on that for their not everybody is full time. I have okay. just one person who's considered full time. OK, but it's still scary. Like, oh, yeah. I, I I don't have any employees and I would find that hard. And I'm wondering, like, I've thought a lot about my own attachment style. Do you know what that is? Yeah. So for people who don't know, like we all have attachment styles based on how we were raised and the kind of conventional wisdom is if you if your parent responded to you properly, you're securely attached. But if your parent was avoidant, you know, didn't respond to you when you cried or was kind of weird, you might become avoidant, avoidantly attached. Or if I don't know how the there's another one that's anxious attachment where you feel like clingy and you like. Mm -hmm. need to know what's happening with your partner or whatever. I'm securely attached, but heavily leaning toward avoidant. Like, I don't like people to need me. Mm -hmm. I feel very encroached upon when I get a lot of emails or if I get... I'm turning red, Maya. Um, I feel very called out. I am clearly yeah. avoidant. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not based on that. You have to like... Um, no, I know I am. I know I am. But yeah, like as a newspaper reporter you're needed so much, especially if you do anything regarding breaking news. So oh. at any point in time, it's like, oh my God, this thing happened, Maya, we need you to go out here. Or you'll get a million emails from different people that you've emailed or 
pitches or editors or whatever. And at some point I was like, you know what? I really don't like this. Like, I wonder, I think that some people like it. Some people must really like being needed. Yeah. And I I do kind of feel like I would go back to newspaper reporting in my 70s or something, like after my kid has grown and maybe my life has slowed down a little bit, it would be feel really good to be needed mm-hmm. like that. But right now, I don't like that. I'm yeah. like, can I have fewer people knocking on my door, please? And I don't mean to say that I don't. I I, cle- I love connecting with people. I love, I don't want to just live under a rock and push everyone away. But I do feel... Like, I get anxiety when, like, you're saying, you know, you have employees, you have people depending on you. Like, I, before having a kid, I had actually never had a pet or even a plant. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I didn't really think about it like that. But it's like, oh, wow, this is so hard for me. And it's hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. But in part because I've never elected to take care of anything before. And now I have a human. This is really hard. Yeah. Is the is the human what prompted you to like jump feet first into the world of personal finance and care more about money? Taking care of a human? Yeah. In part, in yeah. part, just the the sheer like how am I gonna afford this all of it? But I was all I was already interested in personal finance for sure, but this was more like, okay. I Gotta get we're gonna have to figure something out if we want the kind of life we wanna have. Yeah. It was a turbo accelerator. It was a boot camp for so many things. Sure. Yeah. I Well, the jury's still out as to whether or not we we're going to acquire a child, but uh, it seems pretty life-altering, Maya. It is. Not like a little green plant in the corner. No. <clears throat> nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so one season into Other People's Pockets, wh- what did you? what have you learned? podcasting for for a full season any insights you want to share could be financial related could be creative related whatever whatever you learned yeah I've learned a lot I so I've never done a podcast before I frankly have no idea why anyone (laughs) trusted me to do this I've learned a lot just about podcasting like I was used to doing interviews as a reporter but it's very different when you have to produce a written product because I would do interviews with the goal of me understanding something, not for it to be entertaining to anybody else, not for the conversation to flow, and just to extract certain sound bites, if you yeah. will, like certain choice quotes that are going to appear in the written format. And, and for me to really understand, for me to feel like I walked away and I, I felt like I understood. But that can lead to a very machine gun approach to questions where you're just like blasting someone like, okay, what about this? And that's not fun to listen to. And so in the podcast process, I really had to learn how to actually have a conversation and be more personable myself and listen to what they're saying and not always be thinking of the next question and really kind of react to what they actually said and just be thinking about what the listener experience is in real time. And that was very hard in the beginning and I I get very nervous. And I I had to drink during them a lot of the time. Like I had to really be like... like, alcohol? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was like, oh my God, I'm too nervous. And I had my list of questions. And now I'm more like, I have my list of questions, but 
I'm going to let this flow and just let my curiosity be my guide. And so it's just a totally different way of interviewing someone. And yeah, and just kind of learning about sort of more of the business aspects, I guess, like the social media aspect, which takes way longer than you think it does. And so much longer. And all the components that need to go into that with video and graphics and just you thinking about like, how is it that people even find this podcast or how do, how do you break through in this crowded podcast landscape? And it's not just about being having a good podcast, like no one fucking cares. If you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a lot of good podcasts out there. So how do you break through? And yeah, I, I think I've just I've learned a lot about that. But I think one of the things that has been nice is that because I never set out to be a podcaster early in my career. This is kind of a fun bonus thing. In Louisiana, they call it a lanyap. It's like, it's just a cherry on top. It's not, I don't feel like, I mean, I love it, but it's it's just really fun. It doesn't feel like, oh, I have just clawed my way <laughs> into this industry and I need to win XYZ awards in order for myself to feel... And it's just like, you know what? The fact that I even get to do this is amazing. And it's really... I think what it's taught me is that work and even making money, because I do make money off of the podcast, can feel like fun and can feel like a state of flow. And I never thought that before. I always thought work was fucking hard and it made your brain hurt and you're exhausted at the end of the day. That's how I felt as a newspaper reporter. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but I never knew that you could make money and do good work that people find valuable and it was fun for you. I That concept didn't make sense to me. It's like, well, but then you didn't earn it because it didn't, it wasn't hard. Yeah, right. You didn't suffer like a good process. <laughs> yeah, you didn't suffer. Yeah. Well, there, there. That's the choice quote right there, Maya. <laughs> that is such a beautiful insight, and I feel the same way. I feel like how adorably silly it is that I get to have an opportunity to reach out to people who I think are doing interesting things in the world, like you, and just connect with you and have a conversation with you and try to bring something valuable to other people's lives. And even if it's that little nugget of Maya being like, my mind was exploded because now I have a job where I'm paid very well and I get to explore my curiosities and it's not drudgery, right? It's not toiling. That's, I think, one of the best insights that you could share with people. So thanks for sharing it. Yeah, and I just really want people to know that, and this is something my executive coach taught me, the thing that you are sort of meant to do in this world or the thing that will provide the most value to you and to others is probably a thing that you find easy. And you find it easy because you're so good at it. And therefore, you don't value it because you think everyone can do this. Well, they can't. And so just think about like, what are the things where I feel flow, where I feel like the time just goes by, where I feel like I could do it even if I'm tired and I just enjoy it. Think about those skills, those, those moments, because those are the places you should lean into. And typically we devalue them because they're so obvious to us. It's like, why would anyone pay me to do that? I could do that in my sleep. You could do it in your sleep because you're so good at it. I wish that, that somebody had explained that to me a lot earlier because I, yeah, I, I only thought of work as, as struggle. 
before. Beautiful <laughs> sentiment. Shout out to your executive coach. <laughs> that was like a big year. advertisement for her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Maya, before I let you go, I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Is there anything you've purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but for you is money well spent? Totally. <laughs> the thing I thought of, and I, I hope I don't just sound too much like a personal finance nerd, but we, my husband recently, technically we were on a trial. I don't know if we'll do this forever, but we hired basically a personal accountant who, so we use YNAB, this budgeting software, you need a budget and it's something you can do yourself. But it, it, YNAB is very complex. Like you really have to get every single one of your transactions and give every dollar a job. And it can be a lot to maintain. And I've been doing it for years. And I was like, I wish there was somebody who could basically do my YNAB for me and kind of keep me abreast of everything. And I can still go in, but but I don't have to reconcile a bunch of transactions at the end of every week. And so we found that this accountant who has access to our YNAB, but she does not have any access to our actual bank accounts. She can't take our money, move our money, but she can just do our YNAB for us. And then at the end of every week, she sends a little video of like, here's what's going on. Did you notice that you are getting charged twice for Spotify? Did you notice that you're over a budget on XYZ? You know, here's what I'm noticing, da, 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 da. And then, you know, you can trust your budget. You can pay off your credit card because I've blah, blah, blah. And it's amazing. I didn't it's, know that was a job. Yes. It's $300 a month, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. But our rationale was that overall we would save money because we would like stop all the weird overspending and we would figure out like what the hell is going on. So I don't know. I don't know if we'll continue it. But so far, every time she sends me a video, I'm like, thank God for this woman. Like, I don't fucking have time for this, you know? Okay, I'm very curious. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> Because you can still, and then you can still go into your YNAB and do whatever. And then she's like, that's fine. Do do whatever you need to do. I can see there's a part of YNAB where you can see everything that was done recently. She's like, it won't confuse me. So it's not like you're handing over the keys totally. Mm -hmm. You're just having somebody help you allocate stuff. You're kind of paying for caring. Yeah. Like you're paying someone to give a shit about your finances. Does she yeah. do? Does and she... a second set of eyes. And right. notice things. Yeah. Do they only work with YNAB? Good question. I'm not sure. Okay. She probably works with other things. She's a certified accountant. So she, I'm sure she works with QuickBooks and other accounting software, but I'm not sure. This is fascinating because, you yeah. know, I run a bookkeeping agency and part of yeah. our job is to help their our clients care about their business finances. But mm -hmm. we don't, I know whenever people are like, we want personal bookkeeping. I'm like, I don't want to mess with that. That sounds like... I don't know. It just sounds like a lot. You know what I mean? Categorizing people's California chicken cafe expenses and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not interested. Yeah. In that, but I don't know when yeah. you frame it in this somebody, way. Like, somebody is. Yeah. Oh, I have an idea. I have a business idea for anybody out there looking for. Okay. So I interviewed a financial dominatrix on my show. And she's basically someone who's like a real dominatrix, but it's based on like giving her money and she berates you. It's all about Shame. like losing your money to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then having this experience with this personal accountant, like, okay, just stay with me. <laughs> you know how there's, my friend was telling me about this, like, device, I guess, that you can, 
this is so weird. I can't believe I'm talking about this. This device that you can like put on a man's penis that's like a like a cage. Oh, and yeah. then yeah. you like mm-hmm. as a partner, only you have the key mm-hmm. to it and like you can unlock it or not. And it's just okay. So kind of like so, chastity dominating. Yes. Yeah. So there should be a personal finance accountant <laughs> dominatrix who basically will do what my accountant does. Like she will, she's on your finances, but and then she'll like shame you or like if you overspend there'll be like this shaming session or she'll do like the financial domination basically a financial dominatrix who will actually keep your finances in line okay i'm gonna not a financial dominatrix that's gonna just take all your money and run but who's actually gonna help you and is gonna be like why the hell did you spend three hundred dollars at trader joe's you bad boy <laughs> but like if you like being called a bad boy yes. though but, oh, but then you, you like, might just overspend yeah right? see the conflict of interest there but i, I like where your head okay, true true but i just i think that for some people it would make managing their personal finances more fun i think it would like i think some people need this it, yes and i i actually think that i'm the personality that would work for because public shaming, okay <laughs> public shaming works for me i know it does yeah, I think it could be public it could be public it's public enough it when be. it's when it's just another person highlighting yeah, my noticing that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we maybe we, we try could this out. Side business. So many other questions I have about it, but I'm gonna move on to the next <laughs> rapid fire one. It's a real conversation starter. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's a cross between accounting and dominating. Okay, yeah, we'll workshop this. I think that this one yeah, might have legs, Maya. I think I, I think it, it works. <laughs> Okay, so tell me, what's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? Just to save more, obviously dumb, you know, but like that saving should hurt a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. it should, it's not going to feel totally comfortable. It should hurt a little bit. You should be like, oh man, I don't know if I, but that's, that's how it should be so that you can build up savings. I like it. A little bit of pain. There's a theme here. Did you have any financial superstitions? Did I have a financial I think that it wasn't really a superstition in the direct sense of like, if the sky is blue, then it means this. But I think I just was very suspicious of anybody who had a lot of money or who wanted a lot of money. In some ways, I still am if you're kind of like, I just want to be a billionaire. Like, I think that, you know, that's this whole other category. But I think, yeah, I was suspicious of anyone who would have money as one of their top three or even 10 goals. Sure. I'm trying yeah. to think. I feel like it's like preying on that blizzard brain, you mm-hmm. know, of just like the idea that there will be no scarcity if you have money. And so I think it's kind of easy to default to that drawing A to B, even though it's mm-hmm. kind of weird and false. You know? Yeah. Last one for you. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? I definitely do. But as I was thinking about this, I don't have any... I'm bad at recall of various random things. I would say something that I regret and still do is in terms of giving, like, I don't give away enough of my money. And I definitely have people in my life that need money. And I don't think, I think just like thinking about 
when you get really caught up in personal finance, like books and all that stuff, you're like, you become, it's become, you can be, ugh. you become very self-focused. Like, okay, well then I need to save this much for myself and I need to save this much for my daughter and I need to do this. And there's not really a focus toward giving or that part of investment is investing in relationships or other types of investment in your life. So I think just kind of there's like a regret around. It's a regret in the past and a current regret around like being so kind of into personal finance that you end up being really egotistical and not thinking about investment as like a holistic thing and that investments are also in people and communities and stuff like that. I don't know if that's like too wholesome an answer. You can cut. I don't I don't like it when people give wholesome answers on my show. You and don't? No, I hate I like just Why? when people are like, you know, I just really, you know, like the book, like because sometimes I'll ask what's a what do you indulge in? And it's like, well, I just really indulge in spending time with my family or what you know, like, come on. That's not what you want. You want <laughs> you want McDonald's, you want the McDonald's yes! French fry answer. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I, I get okay. <laughs> I will say that that did not feel Saccharin, that was not overly wholesome. Okay. I think it's a symptom of, you know, just we live in a very indiv individualistic society and a lot of us are pitted against one another yeah. in competition versus, you know, solid ways to come together as, as a community, right? It's, it's more profitable to keep us in competition. If yeah. you have to have a nice blender and I have to have a nice blender, guess what? Two blenders get sold. Yeah. Yep. So there's that. Yeah. All right, Maya, it's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. It's been wonderful chatting with you. For the folks who are listening, if you want to hear all of season one, it's available now wherever you get your podcasts. All of season one of Other People's Pockets with Maya Lau. For the folks that want to follow you along on the internet, where should they go, Maya? Sure. I'm on Instagram at It's Maya Money. That's also my handle on TikTok where I have tons of followers, like probably 45 followers. And on Twitter at Maya Lau, my website is mayalau.com. <laughs> I think that that's, I'm on threads at It's Maya Money. I'm also on LinkedIn. So follow just, everywhere, folks. Yeah. Ambush everywhere. Maya on the internet. Yeah, please. <laughs> she loves getting emails that made her feel needed. <laughs> please email me with a list of things I have to do. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Maya. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And now it's time for the economic update with financial astrologer Susan Goodell. Susan is our resident economic cosmonaut that does what many humans have done before us for thousands of years. She looks to the stars to better understand our economic present and to predict our financial futures. All right, Susan Goodell, welcome back for December's Economic Update. How are you? Hi, Paco. I'm good. I'm, uh, you know, in that post-Thanksgiving coma. (laughs) 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 And uh, surprisingly, might just continue into December. You know, it's the hibernation (laughs) uh, time of the year, so I fully support this super mellow energy. Hopefully, the, the stars will also align and uh, allow us some rest how are things looking from your end big thing for everyone in december is to know that mercury turns retrograde on december 13 and stays retrograde all the way through new year's day all right and then it turns direct on the night of new year's day so 
we're under a Mercury retrograde for most of December. And that's just a time when all of us, so just chill with travel plans, you know, leave more time for getting to the airport, expect delays. Just if something happens, just say, oh, that's Mercury retrograde and move on. <laughs> you know? Okay. Don't get mad about it. Just, just blame it on Mercury. <laughs> I had an, an old boss who would always say like water off of a duck's ass. So we should all try to um, channel that uh, if you're traveling yes. this holiday season. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But what's interesting about when Mercury turns retrograde in December is the day that the Fed will announce the results of its latest two-day meeting and final one for the year. And it meets on December 12 and 13. And on the 12th, there's a new moon in Sagittarius, which seems like it could be helpful. You know, new moons are about setting new intentions. Sagittarius is about freedom, trying new things. And so that's the energy that the Fed meets under. But the new moon means that the sun and the moon are right together. They're both squaring Neptune at that time. Neptune rules inflation. And so with the sun square Neptune, it could be that the Fed is discouraged about its efforts so far in tackling inflation. The moon square Neptune can mean that they're delusional about the reality of the situation. And it's not a good time to make decisions or take action. So that's the energy of the, you know, the prime day of their meeting. And then they announce when Mercury has just turned retrograde. And it is still out of bounds, which means it is operating at an extreme uh, for another couple of days. So here's the potential of the Fed that maybe shouldn't be making any kind of serious decision. <laughs> from Tuesday announcing on Wednesday under the Mercury retrograde so that anything it says could be extreme and misunderstood because Mercury's retrograde. So kind of you can't win for losing sort of energy. <laughs> I don't like uh, this those Susan. couple of days. I don't yeah, like this I know. one bit. I know I don't I I don't like it very much either. <laughs> and it doesn't help that Venus, the planet that rules money, has moved into Scorpio from Libra. It's in Scorpio from December 4 through 29. Now Venus rules Libra, so it's very happy in Libra. In Scorpio, it's one of its least favorite signs. It's in detriment, which means that money issues feel come under scrutiny. Hmm. And so here Venus is already let down from having left its favorite sign to move into one where it's constantly being picked at and say, is that right? You really mean that? Is that what you really should do with your money? And so here's Venus in that kind of getting picked on mode throughout the Fed meeting period in mid-December. So from a market point of view, that's probably the highlight for the month uh, or those couple of days because then, you know, it's really time to check out for the holidays. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds, you know, I guess that's the upside to a meh feeling, uh, for December as far as astrologically. Yeah, you know, the winter solstice is on Thursday, December 21. And that's become my like favorite day of the year because it means the light is coming back now, uh, right? We're at the very depths of darkness. And the legendary trader W.D. Can always looked at the 
changes of seasons as a potential for a change of trend. So maybe if it's kind of meh into through up until the solstice, the solstice could flip that around. But this year in particular, I would think that that last trading week of the year, even if it's a change of trend, even if it gets a little brighter because of the solstice, that last trading week could be more than usual uh, low volume, uh, low volatility, because both Christmas and New Year's are on Mondays, which means that it'll be really easy for people to take off that entire week between <laughs> Christmas and New Year's. And so they'll check out on the, you know, the last trading day is the 22nd. They won't be back until New Year's at the earliest, January 2. Full 10 days where people are on vacation. And so the trading during that week, that last week of the year, will, I think, probably be lower and slower than normal. Well, you know, a good time for it to happen with the retrograde, right? Less things can go wrong. Yeah, you would hope so. And then what's nice is that Jupiter finally turns direct in motion on December 30th. So just at the end of the year, Jupiter, which has been uh, retrograde since Labor Day, turns direct and I think gives the end of the year kind of, uh, oh good, Jupiter, the, the cosmic Santa Claus <laughs> is back and wants to give us presence and more and more than we could ever possibly wish for. And it's turning direct and so is off a of vacation and ready to do that right at the end of the year, which I think could be nice. That's such a nice way to just celebrate the, the end and celebrate the beginning of the year. So thank you, Jupiter. Yeah, thank you, Jupiter. And, you know, and Mercury will just about be ready to turn around too. And so by the time you're back in the saddle on the 2nd of January, both Jupiter and Mercury are direct. And that's great. Awesome. Anything else we should be looking out for this December, Susan? No, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Just hang in there for the Fed meeting on December 12, 13, and just recognize that it could be they don't really maybe know what they're saying, and we'll probably misunderstand what they're trying to say and <laughs> <laughs> with the retrograde and everything going on, and it, it'll all be better after the solstice. All right. Well, Susan and everybody listening, I hope you have a lovely holiday season. May you be unscathed by this retrograde. And may the, the start of 2024 be strong with, with Jupiter and the giver of gifts. Absolutely. Yes. Yay, Jupiter. <laughs> All right, Susan, until next time. All righty. Take care. Take care. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Susan Goodell for her expertise and guidance on this episode's economic outlook. Thank you to my friends Jenna and Andrew Parker for lending your voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. 
If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with radhi devlukia on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it's brand new season two i'm marissa thalberg and i'm stephen wolf Bedeta, and we're excited to be back having bigger bolder and always real conversations straight from the c-suite front lines of marketing media and more we have great friends joining from people you may know like Wilmer valderrama and bobby burke and people you'll want to know so grab a coffee or hey even an aperol spritz and come join us on america's number one podcast network iheart listen to brand new on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts